0: If you really love music, you're in a state. Let's begin. I'm in a state. I'm in a state. I'm in a state. Oh yeah. I'm in a state. This is a podcast about music if you really love music. Making it, writing it, recording it listening to it, making out to it, hopefully in a room with speakers, pushing air through the space, not some earbuds cutting you off from the universe. with only a GPS system to find your way, but this is a podcast, so audiophile expectations need to be lowered. It's music, goddammit. Marshall Crenshaw entered my universe like it did many 15-year-old kids at the time on the radio an early tv appearance in the early 1980s dressed to kill in cool colored drain pipes lennon specs and a fender strat he had a throwback quality but the music although classic and pop-minded was a wholly unique and original great american voice marshall Crenshaw is for me a generational artist who genuinely and generally brings a smile and respect to anyone's face who knows anything, even a passing interest about music. I got a chance to spend an afternoon in the studio inside a beautiful barn in the country, in a town in the Hudson Valley, about a hundred miles from New York City. I could have been in the workroom of any artist, but it wasn't. It was someone who I listened to and seen on TV in the most impressionable years of my youth. He made a life for himself as a singer-songwriter and a rock and roll guitar player, an artist who respects and genuinely loves the craft of the music that he produces. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Marshall Crenshaw. Marshall is currently re-releasing his classic second record, Field Day, through Intervention Records. It was a controversial record at the time. Warner Brothers questioned his choice of producer Steve Lillywhite and forced him to make a record soon after his debut,
1: less than a year. In the first place, it was dumb and a wrong move to do a second album so quickly after the first but I, I let myself get talked into it and I, you know I said to myself well the Beatles did it you know they did three albums a year or whatever it was and I just thought fine you know I'll take on this challenge but it wasn't smart And uh... well, I,
0: could, I mean you had a bunch of great songs as you said in your pocket yet you whenever you're on my mind you had
1: well uh, I, had, w- I had whenever you're on my mind and a couple others and then I wrote you know I wrote the rest I just wrote them real fast one of the songs the last song on the album is a thing called Hold It, and I wrote the lyrics while I was doing the vocal. You know, like we set up the whole mix, and I didn't have a finished lyric yet so i just wrote a a first verse sang it we comped it then we stopped i got 20 minutes i wrote the next part you know it was silly but that's how we did it and then uh and then we did like the dub mix thing at the end i was uh, a really enthusiastic fan of this radio station in new york city at the time called w-l-i-b-a-m which is still on the air but uh during this time frame it was all Caribbean music so they would play a lot of uh, you know like Lee Scratch Perry remixes and both Steve Lillywhite and I really dug that whole thing.
0: I was going through a bunch of your tunes and I feel like there's a lot of kind of nostalgic longing whenever you're on my mind somewhere love can't find me you're my favorite waste of time what do you dream of cynical girl a lot of this stuff I, I mean is is this conscious in, in you that you're this kind of mournful reminiscence but in a beautiful <laughs> pop song
1: I mean you, you named off a handful of songs and they're, uh, our town I think I was just trying to get something on to the page really you know like I hadn't written anything in a while and I thought okay what am I gonna write about oh I know I'll write about New York City that was like a topic that I could seize on back then right and and just get something down on the page and I, I think uh, I wrote it pretty fast the thing about longing and all that I don't know it just seems like there needs to be some kind of tension in a song, you know, some kind of unfulfilled desire or just something in it that creates an urgency or something, you know?
0: you know. You said once you don't write every day that you need a recording project to write. So I am assuming you're not doing the, you're not journaling. Mm-hmm. Or doing the artist's way
1: i don't i'm not that kind of uh writer at all i'm not i'm a guitar player and i've always been able to kind of slap a tune together a piece of music i can do that well the last time i tried it i could do it but lyrics was always like a thing you know like a I just was never satisfied with my whatever I, you know, like lyric wise, I just thought this, I really, this is really a stumbling block, like a real thing that I have to conquer somehow. And eventually I just found a way to do it. I found a way to get words that glued to the melodies that I wrote, you know, and that they worked musically. And, you know, I thought that a lot of the time they were interesting too. You know, I just, I got, I reached this point in my life where I was just, all of a sudden I got, I had it, you know, I could do it.
0: What comes first,
1: the music or the lyrics? No, it's always a piece of music first. I've read over the years enough sort of like literature about this to understand that it's sort of like an old school approach. That's the way songwriting teams of the uh, great American songbook era would do it. You know, there'd always be a piece of music, first and then the lyric writer would have to torment himself to try to fit some words to this thing you know whenever you see just my name on a song that means that i'm both guys i'm the guy that bangs out the music in a half hour and then tortures himself with the lyrics to get the words on the page yeah to then have them fit the music that's a big deal with me is you know the the words have to really work musically and content wise i you know i just hope that i've got something i'm kind of obsessed almost with the words really even though i'm saying you know it's like a necessary evil but the words are really important I think, you know. One of
0: the most listened to and streamed songs that you can find of Marshall's is a cover of Buddy Holly's Crying, Waiting, Hoping. Marshall, of course, played Buddy Holly, acting in
1: the film biography of Richie Vallon's La Bamba. I did that session with Gary Talland and Max Weinberg, and that was for the La Bamba soundtrack. In the script, it said that Buddy Holly was going to sing That'll Be the Day, of course, so we recorded that, and then there was someone at the record label that liked Buddy's song Well All Right. So we did a version of that. And then Gary said, oh, why don't we try uh, Crying, Waiting, Hoping? And I said, well, you know, that's a little bit oddball, because he had never recorded that song during his lifetime. It was a, He wrote it just before he went out on the tour. But Gary said, hey, who cares? Nobody knows that. And so we did it, and lo and behold, you know, like of the three songs we did, the filmmakers chose Crying, Waiting, Hoping.
0: You're obviously so associated with Buddy because of the movie he was a a big early influence.
1: Totally. Uh, Yeah, I was really uh, enthralled with him, definitely, as a kid. Yeah, I I saw him on Ed Sullivan the first time. I don't remember seeing him the second time. I saw him on the Dick Clark Saturday Night Show. Uh, He did this Uh, Heartbeat was the one that he did. And I was disappointed because he didn't have his guitar. He just walked across this little footbridge stage set thing that they had and sang the song. I just remembered that a couple months ago that I saw him that time on TV. A lot of artists
0: begin their career with the classic three Bs, Beethoven, Bach, and Brahms. But for Marshall, it was Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. He was cast in the
1: touring company of Beatlemania, and it changed his trajectory forever. You know, it really did have an impact on me. I mean, that was like the crossroads point in my whole life, really. When I got in Beatlemania, it just changed everything. And uh, in fact, you know, like about a year before I got in Beatlemania, I would left the Detroit area and headed to the West Coast with a friend of mine from high school and that was my plan you know to go out there and just pound the pavement until something happened but beatlemania like rerouted me to the opposite coast i wound up on the east coast you know i left for the west coast and wound up on the east coast because of beatlemania
0: marshall started his career writing songs in new york city you can see why Robert
1: Gordon found Someday Way" such an attractive song for him to record. It was uh, you know, I mean it was such a big deal at the time it was like a, I got this message on my answering machine for him, from him. I, I played it like five times I'm like this can't be real but anyway it was and I, I wound up working with him on two of his albums. The first one wound up getting canned but then some of the tracks came out later on and then on the second one he recorded two or three of my songs and one of them was Someday Way." his version of Someday Way." It was a hit in New York City on WNEW and that also just kind of blew some doors open for me.
0: Thankfully, Warner Brothers eventually forced Marshall to record his own version of it on his debut album. Not many artists
1: can say that they have a signature song—something that will be remembered forever. I'm really glad that they made me do it. Yeah, honestly, I, I really—I um, believe me. I mean, at the time, I thought it was weird that they focused on that song so specifically because I thought, well, I got a, every every one of my songs is great. Why that one? You know, but. <laughs> No, it's great. You know, whenever I hear it, I'm like, you know, this is such a nice record. It's got such a great groove. It's really a nice little hit single kind of work of art thing. I'm glad they made me do it. You've released a lot of live records, whereas I thought you were kind of a record guy. Or do you like exploring both sides? I mean, playing live is really what it's all about. The act of playing and singing, that's really what it's all about, honestly it's really good medicine for me good for my mental health my spiritual well-being it's, a, it's just fun and uh, you know to try to stay sharp so that when i pick up the guitar it's it's not like what the hell is this thing you know <laughs> but I, I i do love record making believe me i always have you know i'll probably be trying to play in a rock and roll band long after i'm not really making records anymore i'm kind of not making them right now although i imagine that i will again sometime possibly
0: you did the major label thing you did the kind of indie label thing you did the homemade label thing but one way or the other you did your thing
1: right i'm just you know compelled to do what i do i don't know why i can do what i do but it's just that is that's it you know and it always sort of has been the thing that's driven me i wanted to play an electric guitar from the time I was a little kid you know that's all you know I just was really adamant about it growing up it's like well this is what I'm gonna do you know you can talk to me about this other stuff but you know I already have my mind made up about what I'm gonna do and it's odd I know you know that I have had this sort of like single-minded life
0: You had a very encouraging family life uh to sort of help you step into music and 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 become
1: an artist my yeah my dad for sure you know he he loved he loved music it was just like one of the real fundamental things in his life always and i i picked up i picked up on that from him you know i just really loved being around him when i was a little boy and that's that was what he was you know he was just like that was his thing he had the rock and roll station playing in the car which was really uh, utterly weird for the 1950s but anyway he was that was that's what he liked and he was just kind of this vibrant upbeat kind of person most of the time. I mean he could get really angry sometimes too and uh, it was a mixed bag with him but uh, but the music thing definitely and he and when I started to play he was really really great about it he would like sit and listen as long as I wanted to keep going you know and I would just play for him and play songs that were on the radio and he would just sit there and smile at me that was unbelievable
0: got this incredible eclectic um, appreciation for music is, is that from your dad and from growing up you know in a town where there was a lot of different kind of music running through it particularly no he,
1: he had real um, you know his taste was was pretty straightforward it was like you know kind of like, bluesy kind of music was what he liked. You know, like, my dad's favorite album was uh, King Curtis Live at the Fillmore West. And he really liked, uh, you know, he, he liked Alligator Records stuff. He, he loved Eric Clampton. Clampton. I'm saying it the way he said it. My dad insisted on calling him Eric Clampton for some reason until the day he died. But, the, you know, he really liked Eric Clampton. So it was that kind of thing. You know, he really liked bluesy kind of tenor sax stuff. So, uh, you know, my own taste is really way all over the map, and that's not from my dad's influence so much. You do your share of DJing as well, but what are you currently listening to? Well, you know, like a good way to get the answer to that question, like what am I listening to, what am I thinking about, is to check out my radio show on WFUV in New York. Because every week I just play whatever is in my head that week, and uh, most of the time it's something that I'm familiar with that's already in my record collection that I have some kind of emotional connection to. And then there are other weeks where I'm like picking up on something, exploring something. But mostly it's the latter, you know, it's usually stuff that I know. This week, the show that aired last night, I I played some records by friends of mine. Like you see this Peter Holtz Apple record sitting here. This 45, Don't Mention the War. I played the B-side of that on my show. I played a couple of tracks by this guy called uh, Jan Havisto who's from uh, Helsinki and he has a band called Leica and the Cosmonauts. Really beautiful instrumental music that the guy does. Uh, you know, I play a lot of jazz on the Bottomless Pit. Also, uh, there was a guy on the radio station, Rich Conaty was his name. He was on WFUV for 40 years. Had this show called The Big Broadcast. Rich passed away a little while ago. His show was a real cultural treasure. It was it actually was one of the things that made me fall in love with New York City when I got there. My show is on Sunday nights now. I'm in the last hour of what used to be Rich's time slot.
0: What's your favorite guitar? I mean, I I, I saw you do a a special thing for, I guess, Les Paul at at, uh, Iridium in New York.
1: Yeah, that one up above your head, the Sunburst one. My cousin uh, brought that guitar home from Southeast Asia. He was in the Air Force. But anyway, he brought that guitar home. After a little while, he had to sell it and my dad wanted to help my cousin out so he lent me the money to buy my cousin's stratocaster and for a long time that was the only guitar i had you know like at first i was a little bit thrown by it It this is like a different beast than what i was used to you know but after a while i got the hang of it that was my main thing for a really long time fender guitars i really love the way they place themselves in the sonic picture and i think they intonate you know the best of any electric guitars they just they're really great
0: are you still kind of playing around and and learning with your guitar exploring or is it something like an old friend that you
1: go to i don't feel like i'm on a, a learning curve right now which is kind of bad i practice but only sort of like in, in advance of gigs or in advance of tours and uh you know i'm not really satisfied with the situation i feel like i gotta snap out of it really and start uh, thinking about it, being more conscientious about it. But I mean, I, once I pick up a guitar and play for about 10 or 15 minutes, then I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I can play. I, I there's I, I can play the guitar. I should play more than I do. And uh, maybe I don't know. Maybe next year. Yeah, do um, you
0: go. You still go and see live shows?
1: I do. I, there was a thing on Facebook a few months ago where you were supposed to list concerts that you went to. So I started thinking about all the shows I've been to, and it really is absolutely staggering. I saw Jimi Hendrix, yeah, you know. I mean, I saw Count Basie and his orchestra. My dad took me to see them at a, at a high school. I saw Stevie Wonder in the 70s. I saw Cream. I, you know, I saw the MC5 and the Stooges. I saw Earth, Wind, and Fire. It, like, when I really wrapped my mind around it, it I, I thought, wow, that's that's a lot, you know. In the Good evening, ladies and
0: gentlemen. You come, you have doing a bunch please. of shows coming up. Any plans to record?
1: There's an album that's, I think, coming out any minute now, really, um, on this label called Run Out Groove Vinyl. And uh, it's a recording of me and my brother Robert and Cristinato right when we were first kind of venturing out into the world i think this is our first show west of the mississippi it was recorded in san francisco the it was a multi-track recording that someone found in the vault and uh my friend chris stamey mixed it makes it made it sound really kick-ass and powerful which that band was anyway and it's just sort of like that moment in time you know like that this live album thing which is called thank you rock fans by the way To be honest, there's this kind of other thing that I'm preoccupied with and have been for a couple of years. Right now, I'm not 100% sure what the status of it is, but uh, I decided a couple of years ago that I was going to try to make a documentary film about a record producer named Tom Wilson, who I think is a really important figure in the you know history of popular music during my lifetime for sure. Tom Wilson had a record label called Transition Records that he established right after he graduated from Harvard. And it was a very kind of bold, forward-thinking enterprise, you know, like he was all in for like modern jazz. And a couple of years later, he wound up working at Columbia Records and they uh, stuck him with folk singers like the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem and Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan, you know? So he was Dylan's producer during the time that Dylan went electric. And then from there, like after the success with Bob Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel, then rock music was sort of like his calling card for a little while. He was at MGM Verve and he signed The Velvet Underground, produced their first two albums. He signed Frank Zappa, When Nobody Else Would Do That.
0: Marshall Crenshaw still finds inspiration in the right places, places to learn and expand his vocabulary and talents in music. The Tom Wilson documentary film he's working on is a great example. If he's going to look into music's past, it will be to track and document a transformative figure who's always remained underappreciated and under the radar in terms of the music-consuming public that's to me what marshall is and always will be a transformative artist a singer songwriter i want to thank him for hosting me at his wonderful studio giving me a sneak peek into his process and insight into the wonderful music that he's made over the last 35 years This is Porter Block in New York City. After spending an afternoon with Marshall Crenshaw, you can listen to my music on iTunes or Spotify, or listen to this podcast on Inastate.com. Porter Block signing off. If you really love music, you're in estate.